Grace and peace. You want to head back, grab your Bible, turn to Isaiah, Isaiah 52, 13, and we'll read on to Isaiah 53, 12. We'll read from Isaiah 52, 13 to Isaiah 53, 12 as we finish our, our time and and this particular portion of text that we started on Good Friday, looked at during Easter, we're finishing this morning with the final two verses of this particular portion of Scripture. Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12, but we're actually preaching on 53, 11, and 12. Chapter 53, 11, and 12. When you get there, you can just stand up. You need to sit down. And stand right up, have respect and honor for the Word of God. These are the words of Isaiah, inspired by the Holy Spirit. These words come to us. The very same authorities of Jesus was up here speaking them to us this morning. So we should listen with reverence, we should listen with joy to the Word of our King. Beginning in Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, 
I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his life to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, this morning, would you make your word a swift word? passing from the ear to the heart, from the heart to the lip in conversation, that your word might not return to you void, but accomplish that which it goes out to accomplish. All for the sake and glory of your name, we ask these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. You can be seated. We are in our third and final sermon in Isaiah's fourth and final servant song. And we've recalled on Good Friday and Easter Sunday how Isaiah was a prophet in Judah 700 years before the arrival of Christ and how yet he he preached and prophesied concerning the Lord Jesus with with such cogentness and and compassion and clarity. Uh, Isaiah is often called a fifth gospel because he seems to describe the the life and times and ministry of Jesus of, of Nazareth so clearly as if he were there. But then perhaps nowhere is Isaiah's message about Christ so clear as it is concerning Christ in Isaiah 52 and 53. I trust you've seen that this past Friday and this past Sunday. Because what, what we've seen here is a clear foretelling of the substitutionary sufferings and vicarious death of Christ as well as his, his satisfaction and victory in the resurrection. It's as if Isaiah has, has painted a clear portrait of Christ in the history of Israel, so that when he came, God's people would know for certain that this is the one. This is the Savior. It's like he put a, a signpost on the road of redemptive history, showing God's people what is to come and how God would accomplish their salvation through Christ. But now as we come to the the final verses of this fourth and and final servant song, Isaiah spells out for us what all this suffering and dying and rising and redeeming work has accomplished. He's told us about what the servant will do, how he will be executed, how he will be exalted, but, but now what is the end result of the redeeming work of Christ? What does it all accomplish? What's the, the point of this suffering? Christ's death wasn't meaningless, He suffered and poured out his life. He died and rose for a clear, definitive purpose. What is it? As we first look at verse 11, we see that Jesus is satisfied with our justification. Jesus is satisfied with our justification. He suffered and died and rose so that he would be satisfied and so that we would be justified. But there's a connection here. It's our justification that satisfies him. He accomplishes this in that satisfies him. Look at verse 11 here. Out of the anguish of his soul. It's talking about the passion of the Lord Jesus. On the cross, he, he suffered such anguish. He suffered bodily, of course. We've been remembering the, the horrors and brutality of Christ's crucifixion on our behalf. He was brutally tortured and mocked and flogged and beaten and crucified and killed. But then moreover, 
He experienced on the cross such anguish in his soul because he had taken upon himself the sins and guilt of a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue and the hatred and wrath of God for those sins. No one has suffered like Christ has suffered. Yes, others have been tortured, others have been killed, others have been crucified, but no one else in human history has borne the guilt of a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue like he has. No one has faced the full force of the wrath of God like he has. It it was utter anguish in ways we can't even comprehend. Yet what has come of that? What, what, What results from that? What has been affected by that? Out of that anguish comes his satisfaction. Anguish is not the final emotional state of Jesus. Satisfaction is. And you can tell a lot about a person by what they find satisfying. You can tell a lot about a person by seeing what makes them happy, fulfilled, pleased. And so what kind of person is the Lord Jesus? Ray Ortland says this of the passage. He says, he's the kind of person who enjoys clearing sinners of their guilt and accounting them righteous, though it demands that he bear their iniquities upon himself. That's the kind of person he is. He's the kind of person who gains satisfaction through your salvation. And you go, that seems too good to be true. He, he, would, he would suffer and die for our salvation, and then he's happy about it? He still likes us after that? Yes, that's exactly what he's saying. Look, look at what follows. Here, here's what Jesus is satisfied by. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, listen, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Now, we've already talked about the substitutionary nature of Christ's sufferings and death, about how how Christ suffered in our place, covered in our sins and guilt on the cross so that we could go free. But it's actually even better than that. It's, It's not just that we no longer need to bear the just penalty that our sins deserve. It's better than that. We actually get to be counted as righteous. To use a somewhat crude analogy, it's not just that, you know, we were in like severe debt before God and we owed him and we're way, 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 way in the red. But then Christ came to cancel that debt so that we start with like a new zero balance before God. It's, it's so much better than just that. As if that wouldn't, that, that is amazing in itself. This is even better. It's that Christ came and took our debt upon himself and then credited his riches to our account. He didn't just get us out of debt to some place of neutrality. It's more, he actually put endless funds into our account. When it comes to righteousness, we are loaded before God. And to be clear, it's not talking about actual righteousness. It's talking about accounted righteousness. Isaiah's not talking about sanctification here. Sanctification, where you you grow to be more holy, more righteous, more like Christ, more obedient to God's commands. That's an important part of our salvation, purchased for us in Christ. But Isaiah's not talking about that here. He's talking about justification. He's talking about how God takes guilty people like you and me, Christians, even those of us who are Christians, who still sin day in and day out, yet who God does not count as sinners, even though we are, 
He counts us as righteous with the very righteousness of Christ. He's talking about what we call imputation. On the cross, our sins were imputed or counted to Christ. He was accounted as a vile sinner on the cross. He bore our iniquities, is what Isaiah says. But then in exchange for our sins, Jesus, through the cross, gives us his righteousness so that at all times, as a Christian, as a person who trusts in Jesus, whether you're sleeping or sinning, or serving in church, or whatever you're doing, your position in Christ doesn't change. You are declared, counted, righteous. It is fixed, final, forever. You are considered righteous because Jesus Christ himself is the righteous one. I love how John Bunyan communicates this, having come to this realization one day as he was walking through a field. You can find this in his wonderful autobiography, Grace Abounding of the Chief of Sinners. He's, just, he's been struggling at this point in the story for years with just feeling nothing but guilt and condemnation before God. But then one day, he says, as I was passing in the field, and that too with some dashes on my conscience, fearing lest all was not yet right, suddenly this sentence fell upon my soul, thy righteousness is in heaven. And methought withal, I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, was my righteousness. So that whatever, wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not save me. He lacks my righteousness, for that was just before him. I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart, like my good emotional state, my good, the righteousness of my heart, that made my righteousness better, nor in my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday and today and forever. You see what he's saying? Christ is his righteousness. Christ is his acceptableness before God. So long as he is in Christ, his record is perfect, stainless, spotless. There's no guilt. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Paul can say in Romans 8.1. Why? Because all those who are in Christ Jesus are counted righteous with the very righteousness of Christ. And because he took our iniquities upon himself and granted us his perfect righteousness. Our putrid sin was counted to him on the cross and his perfect righteousness has been counted to us forever. The reformers call this a great exchange. We exchange our sin for Christ's righteousness. What a deal. Now, how do we get in on that? How how does one enter into this great exchange, our iniquities and rebellion for Christ's infinite righteousness? How do we swap by knowledge of him, by knowing him? It says, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Now, that's worded in kind of a confusing way. It sounds as if it's the knowledge of the servant. It's maybe how you read it first, but it's the knowledge of the servant that counts us righteous. So through what Christ knows, we are counted as righteous. That doesn't make sense, however, and it's not what it means. A better way to understand it would be that it is our knowledge of Christ through which we are counted as righteous. And don't think knowledge is, you know, just like having some information about Jesus. 
This is a, a relational knowledge here. Knowledge of someone in, a, in more of a Hebrew conception is, is intimately relational, right? Think of Genesis 4.1 where Moses speaks of, of the deeply relational act that took place between uh, Adam and Eve that resulted in the birth of Cain. Now, Adam knew Eve, he says, and she conceived and bore Cain. Trust you see that that doesn't mean that he knew some stuff about Eve. Now, he, he knew Eve. There was a relational, intimate, covenantal binding that took place that resulted in Cain. Well, likewise, when someone knows Jesus Christ, when they trust him and come into covenantal union with Jesus Christ by faith, that is how they are counted as righteous. Martin Luther used to illustrate this so beautifully with a story about a great king representing Jesus and a poor girl of ill repute representing us. This, this king, though great, though mighty, though powerful, though rich beyond measure, he loved this poor prostitute so dearly and he wanted her as his as his own beloved bride and so he came after her to rescue her marry her to bring her to his home so that he could love her for the rest of their days and at their wedding they would exchange vows on the day of their wedding she would say to him all that i am and all that i have i give to you And at that moment, she would share with him all her debts and shame and poverty. But then the king would say to her, all that I am and all that I have, I give to you. And at that moment, that poor prostitute would become a queen, a queen of queens. All the king's riches and honor and power and kingdom and glory would now be hers and it would be forever. And like that, when we come to know and be in union with Jesus Christ by faith, our debt of sin is completely covered on his cross. And his rich righteousness is completely counted to us forever. That's how you get in on it. And this is what satisfies Jesus. Like a husband who, who looks upon the, the flourishing of his wife and is just delighted by it. Like a loving husband who just looks on, on his wife flourishing and he goes, oh, that is just so satisfying. Like that, he looks upon us, freed from guilt, from sin, free from its penalty, counted as righteous before the God of the universe, and he feels nothing but joy and happiness in his heart over that. How freeing is that? How freeing is that? The the God of all heaven and earth is pleased with you, Christian. In a world awash with feelings of guilt and fear and condemnation, in a world hungry with the desire to be seen and accepted and looked upon favorably by others, in a world wherein people are looking for justification through likes and followers, In a world wherein people are trying to find their worthiness through their parenting, or their jobs, their parents' approval, you have the pleasure and acceptance of the one with whom it truly and ultimately matters. 
that should make us joyfully resilient, shouldn't it? Looking for your justification, your, your worthiness, your acceptableness through anything else just leads to being so fragile. A, a mom who looks for justification through her parenting is only going to be devastated when she fails, and she will. A person who looks for their identity and justification in their work will be wrecked when they get fired or demoted or retired or when the company closes down. The person who lives for the approval of others will be demolished when others criticize or reject or slander them. But for those in Christ, yes, yes, those occurrences hurt. But we can be resilient in the face of them like no one else because we have a better word from the mouth of God himself. He says, righteous, accepted. Jesus, your Savior, your bridegroom, looks upon you with satisfaction and joy and pleasure. That's one result of the redeeming work of Christ. His satisfaction and our justification. But then verse 12 goes on to describe another result of the work of Christ, and and that is that Jesus is rewarded for his mediation. Jesus is rewarded for his mediation. Look at verse 12 here. Isaiah writes, therefore, our little rule we got to remember, whenever you see the word therefore, you need to find out what it's there for. Isaiah just said in verse 11 that Jesus bore our iniquities. He bore our sin. Our sin was imputed to him on the cross, and on the cross he accomplished our salvation. Therefore, here's what God will do. He will reward Jesus like a warrior who fights and wins a great battle and receives booty, spoil, treasure after his victory. So will Christ. The Lord says, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. And we're going to come back to this. Moving on, and again, in case we forgot, Isaiah again tells us why Jesus will be rewarded in this way. We already saw he will, be, we, he will be rewarded because he bore our iniquities, but then again, he tells us why he will reward Jesus in this way, because, so here's why, he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And his sacrifice for us, he died, Christ died according to God's plan and pleasure. He willingly poured himself out for our sins. As even says here, he was numbered with the transgressors. He, he died like a sinner. He died like a wretched criminal, and yet it was not for his own sins and crimes that he died, but for ours. That's why Isaiah goes on to say, yet he bore the sin of many. For his elect, his chosen people, he bore our sin. He was numbered among sinners like us that he might bear the guilt of sinners like us. And all so that those who place their faith and trust in Christ would be relieved of their debt and credited as righteousness. And then this last phrase, the, the, the Hebrew verb goes from being spoken of in the perfect to the imperfect. He's saying, you know, he's been saying he poured, he was numbered, he bore. In English, it's all in the past tense because it's already been done. It's already happened. But now we find in a, a, a verb in the perfect form, he says, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. It's an ongoing action. He continues to make intercession for his people. And this is, is of course, speaking of the very present ministry of Jesus Christ right now. 
He was killed. He was raised from the dead three days later in victory over Satan, sin, and death. And then 40 days after that, after his resurrection, Jesus ascended into heaven to be our representative and intercessor before God the Father. So right now, Jesus is risen and ascended in heaven, representing his people before God. That's why Bunyan could say earlier, as as we read earlier, no, no matter what's going on with me down here, when I'm in good frame of heart, when I'm in bad frame of heart, no matter where I am or what I'm doing, I don't lack God's perfect righteousness because Christ's perfect righteousness is ever before God, right there in heaven, representing me. I love how Charles Wesley's great hymn on this glorious reality speaks of this. He beautifully writes of Christ's interceding, representing ministry in his hymn, Arise, My Soul, Arise. Listen to this. He writes, Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. Could stop there, but... I just can't, st- I wanted to read more. He ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead. His blood atone for every race. His blood atone for every race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour. They pour effectual prayers. These are not empty prayers. They will be answered. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me, forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Don't let that ransom sinner die. Right now, God looks upon his most beloved son and he remembers his sacrifice on your behalf and then he looks on you with pleasure and forgiveness and undeserved kindness all based on the merits and mediation of Christ. And then God goes, I love this. I want to reward you for this. God is so pleased that his beloved son is done and is doing these very things. He's so pleased that he, he rewards Jesus for it. God looks with pleasure on his son, and then he looks on his son and so pleased with us that he can look on us and be pleased. And he goes, oh, I just love you. I want to reward you with the desires of your heart. And then what does he reward Jesus with? That's what the first two lines of verse 12 speak to. And it's, it's difficult to translate. You, you, you might have noticed this if you have a different translation than the ESV. The, the imagery, as we've already stated, is, is of a battlefield victory. And the servant, the son, has emerged victorious. And now he gets to enjoy the spoils of his victory. He gets to enjoy the reward for his sacrifice. And there are two ways, I think, that it, it could be translated and, and, and two ways that you could understand it. And both make sense grammatically, both are true theologically, but I think that one makes more sense contextually. So the first way to translate and understand these verses precisely how the ESV translates it, which we've already read, says, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Translating it and understanding it in this way means that Christ receives the reward of his suffering, and then he shares that reward with his people. His people being the many and the strong. The designations many and strong are speaking numerically. It's, it, 
that's obvious word by the word uh, many here, but the word strong also means numerous. I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the numerous. Those words are quantitative, not qualitative. I mean, there are many, many, many from every nation, tribe, and tongue who Christ has purchased and saved by his execution and exaltation. And, and, and here the ESV understands this verse to be saying that those many, the numerous, are those with whom Christ shares the rewards of his suffering. Of course, it's theologically true. Christ, by his work, he has conquered. He has won a great inheritance, this inheritance of eternal life and an, an eternal kingdom. He has won a resurrection and, and, and an eternal city by his work. And this is a reward that he shares with us. He speaks of this in Revelation 3.21. Jesus says, the one who conquers. I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. In other words, just, just as I conquered and was rewarded, those who remain faithful and conquered by my power and grace will also be rewarded. You will receive eternal life in an eternal city where you will eternally reign with the eternal Christ. That's why Paul can save us. Romans 8, 17, that we are co-heirs with Christ. We share in his reward. We share in his inheritance. So yes, Jesus is rewarded with eternal life and an eternal kingdom, and he is gladly, graciously sharing the spoils of his victory with us, and he will forever. That is glorious. That is deserving of our awe. But I don't think that's what Isaiah is saying here. It makes sense of the text grammatically. It's true theologically. I think something else makes more sense contextually. And another way of viewing this, it also makes sense grammatically, is true theologically, is represented well in the CSB translation of the Bible. If you have that translation, here's what you were reading. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil, or the numerous as spoil. I appreciate how uh, uh, scholar Alec Matir translated it as well. He translates it like this. Therefore, I will apportion out to him the many, and the mighty he will apportion as spoil. Maybe you can see the difference. In the first view, Christ receives a reward and shares it with his people. And in the second view, Christ's people are his reward. Both are possible grammatically, both true theologically, but the second one I think makes more sense contextually. And I say that because of what the previous verse was saying regarding Christ looking upon the results and effects of his suffering, namely that many are accounted righteous in him and he is satisfied and happy with their salvation. Now here... Isaiah seems to be offering something of a different angle on that same reality. Our salvation satisfies Christ. Our salvation and being given to Him is a reward. Our being brought into covenantal union with Him is what He so desired and why He suffered. And now He is rewarded with the fruit of His sufferings, the sure salvation of His chosen people. He gets His people, He gets His bride as His forever possession. It's theologically true. It's taught in the New Testament. Ephesians 1.18, the Apostle Paul says something stunning about guilty transgressors like us. He says that the church, Christians, we are God's inheritance. Now think about that for a moment. He's saying that we, the church, Christians, you, you are so precious to God, you are are what God looks forward to enjoying forever and ever. 
I, I don't know about you, that makes me ready to run through a wall. And there's nothing that so energizes a person than to know that you're loved. Than to feel that you're loved by someone, especially someone that you hold in high esteem, it's invigorating. It galvanizes you and propels you to just love them in return and to honor them in your life. It gives you energy and vitality. But to know that the God of the universe... The greatest and best of all beings, God, the Lord, the ancient of days, the eternal king, the one of whom nothing greater can be conceived, loves you in this way, words can't express how incredible that is. But then there's also an astounding responsibility that comes from this reality. This means... That there are others who have been purchased and redeemed by the work of Christ. It's the many, the numerous. There are many, many people from every nation, tribe, and tongue whom Christ has purchased with his own blood. That means that there are many people who, has, who are his reward that have yet to know, to hear, and to be given such good news. To be given to him as his reward. There are individuals in your city, in your neighborhood. In your workplace, in your school, there are people groups across the earth, unreached, some of them unengaged, totally ignorant of the effective work of Christ and that they are his reward. That's, they need to know so that Jesus can receive his reward. The Moravian pietists, they were a remarkable group of Christians in church history, they've inspired many to live for the sake and cause of Christ. People like William Carey, John Wesley found inspiration from the Moravians. Early on in, in the Moravian movement, the Lord moved powerfully among them. And as a result, they started a, a 24-7 prayer meeting that lasted for over 100 years. They lived radically for Jesus in, in ways that are at times shocking and and one such example of this is, is a couple of men who felt a burden to be sent out as missionaries to an unreached people. Moravians sent many missionaries, but this story of this, these two men, it's been told for a long time. It's inspired many other missionaries in turn. It was the year 1732. Two tradesmen, they weren't pastors, two tradesmen, 36-year-old man named David Nitschman, and a 26-year-old man named Johann Leonhard Dober. They lived in Hernhut in Germany. And they heard about the, the plight of a group of, of African slaves on the island of St. Thomas in the Caribbean. And how these slaves had not heard the gospel. They were unreached with the gospel and they had no one seeking to engage them with the gospel. And so they, they set their faces like flint and they determined to go. Then after some research, they found that the only way that they could possibly live there is that they'd, they'd have to sell themselves into slavery on the island in order to minister to the slaves there. There'd be no returning, no going back, no seeing their families ever again. If they went, they would work there, labor there, and eventually die there. And yet, as they were on the ship, leaving the wharf, looking on 
their loved one's faces for the last time. The story says that they raised their fists and they cried out, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. May Christ, who died as a sacrifice in the place of guilty sinners, who died to secure salvation of guilty sinners, who died to secure the satisfaction of his heart in their justification, may he receive the reward of his suffering. We're the reward of his suffering. There's a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, many of whom have yet to be gathered in, who are the reward of his suffering. So we're called to use that thrill that comes from being so loved and cherished by God to bring others into the sphere of his cherishing love. We're to cross streets and seas, cubicles and cultures, all so that the lamb might receive the reward of his suffering. What is the end result of the redeeming work of Christ? What does it all accomplish? What's the point of all of his suffering? Christ's death wasn't meaningless. He suffered and died and rose to be satisfied with our justification and rewarded with the people whom he would love forever. May this assure us and encourage us this morning to live for him in all things. Father, seal this word upon our hearts and assure us of its truthfulness as we come now to receive the bread and the cup. Remind us as we receive the elements now that Christ's body was broken and his blood was shed to purchase us. Then moreover, may they also be a communion with his body and blood so that we would be strengthened and and assured and, and encouraged and confirmed in what they proclaim to us. And may we remember that just as the the wheat that went into this bread and the 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 grapes that went into these cups were scattered among many fields and then brought together to feed us this morning, that there are those who are scattered across the world today who have yet to hear of the good news of Jesus Christ and who need to be brought in. And may they also increase in us the hope of eternal life which Christ will bring, reminding us of our inheritance when one day we will see him and feast with him face to face in his eternal kingdom. May it inspire hope in us. May this meal be a meal of remembrance and communion and hope for us so that we might live for you in all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.